0: Welcome to Left, Right, and Unwanted, the podcast where people across the political spectrum discuss ideas and politics. I'm Lauren, and I'm the left. I'm Morgan, and I'm the right.
1: I'm Luke, and I'm the unwanted. Last time, we briefly discussed my least and most favorite presidents. Do either of you have any heroes or villains among the presidency?
0: Personally, I like Jefferson. When I was confirmed... In my church, my dad, his confirmation gift to me was the Jefferson Bible, which was the first really encounter I'd had with him. So I enjoyed that. And then I learned more about him. So he's on my list. My students kind of enjoyed Andrew Johnson, (laughs) which is kind of funny. (laughs) So after the Lincoln assassination, I mean, he kind of has an interesting story. So I guess I, I like teaching about him and kind of different challenges he faced in a very interesting part of the country.
2: I remember in elementary school, I did a report on Woodrow Wilson, and all I remember is we had to like, we were doing like a presidential race, like a mock presidential race, and we had to turn the presidents into bugs, and I named what? him Wormrow Wilson. There you
1: have it. Some hard-hitting stances. So today we're doing the second half of the 1776 Commission Report, Sections 4, 5, and 6.
0: Section four summarizes challenges to America's principles, including slavery, progressivism, fascism, communism, racism, and identity politics. Section five delves into the task of national renewal. So after examining the issues facing the nation, how do we get the nation back on track? And then section six offers concluding thoughts and a reflection on America's founding principles.
1: Section four, challenges to America's principles. So the first challenge to America's principles that they identify is slavery, which has been a pretty common topic.
0: Really, this is the... Part where I think you could argue that this is written in opposition to the 1619 Project. They do say in here that many Americans believe slavery to be uniquely American, which I think we've already discussed in previous episodes, is just essentially not true. It's just factually false. I agree with them. Yes, slavery is not a uniquely American thing. And that yes, it has been the case in human history. But then they go on to also assert that the founding fathers did own slaves they were slave owners, but they say that they've kind of been unfairly judged because of a lot of that.
1: It goes through and talks a, a, again about sort of the history of America with slavery through the First Continental Congress, Second Continental Congress articles and how they, they took some actions that discontinued the slave trade, the Northwest ordinate. Ordinance explicitly banned slavery, and, and Benjamin Franklin being the president of the, the first abolition society, and some other anti slavery actions taken by people the US founding fathers. And then here it actually mentions something I mentioned last episode about Frederick Douglass, how he initially condemned the Constitution, but then changed his mind. And then it gets into Calhoun, who, and, and this is going to be something that's going to recur throughout the rest of the, the paper, is they say Calhoun rejected the Declaration's principle of equality as the most dangerous of all political error, and added a new theory in which rights are not individual, but they are they adhere in groups and races according to historical evolution. They, they, they're quoting him from his speech on Oregon, which he gave in 1848. 1848 was a year that there were a lot of revolutions in Europe. It resulted in a lot of immigration to the United States. Almost every I believe every single European nation except for Britain had a revolution of some sort in in 1848. He talks about how the worst form of government is better than anarchy and individual freedom must be subordinate to whatever power may be necessary to protect society against anarchy from within or destruction from without. He first starts by attacking a phrase that says all men are born free and equal. And he says this isn't true because men aren't born, infants are. You become a man later. You're not born free because you're incapable of freedom while you're an infant. You can't think, you can't act, you're you're under your parents. And he says, and remain so among all people, savage and civilized until the development of their intellect and physical capacity enables them to take care of themselves and they grow into freedom. So he's not really getting at group rights. What I think he's trying to say is some individuals develop mentally to the point where they gain liberty and some don't and he would, I assume, place the slaves among that as people that never intellectually developed sufficient to gain freedom. So it's not that rights are group rights or or race rights, it's just that some people never attain individual rights because of their own lack of mental development. I think the report's trying to tie Calhoun to identity politics later. So they categorize it as group rights, but it's really individual rights that just not everyone ever gets is, is his position.
0: I also wondered if they're reading some of his beliefs as the idea of group rights too. Um, so they do discuss that he, and we've said this, I think in some of the 1619 episodes that he has called slavery a positive good I mean, and I was kind of trying to see where they got this too. And I wondered if it came from his views on majority rule. And that's kind of what they're trying to say with group rights, meaning how he viewed different groups and how they should be able to vote and express interests.
1: The next challenge to America's principles that they identify is progressivism, which uh, specifically progressivism as the movement that occurred in the decades following the Civil War. Um, in response to the Industrial Revolution and the expansion of urban society?
0: The way they define it up front is by saying that progressives think America's original software, meaning the founding documents, as in the Declaration of the Constitution, are no longer capable of operating the hardware, meaning the industrial society and structure of the country. So the way progressivism is defined is by saying the initial documents that that our nation up are antiquated and things need to be reformed. They say in here that progressives are concerned with
1: group rights. The idea that progressives thought that the founding documents were outdated is, is accurate. I mean, you see Wilson talking about the constitution is something that hinders what needs to be done. And really it's, again, I don't think progressives really hold to group rights um, that are constantly redefined and changed the times. I think they're million utilitarians where they don't really believe in rights. Anything they designate as a right, it's, it's a right because it's useful. So it's, it's really all sort of a, a consequentialist approach. So anything that seeks to protect rights is getting in the way of the common good is a, how a progressive of, progressive of the time would likely categorize it. Also, yeah, progressives, in addition to not liking rights, they also didn't like the structure of the old government. So they were really big into... Um, central planning. So they they wanted a rule of the technocrats. This sort of listen to the experts, trust the science, central planners, and they will sort of tinker around. You have these policy wonks who are going to come in and set the right set the interest rate here. We'll set the tax rate here, and we'll get everything you know correct, and that'll enable us to run society.
2: I don't know. To me, it kind of leads into then where it talks about um, the quote. Fourth branch of government and how it's just all about um, like logic and as they say pragmatism and science.
1: This permanent bureaucracy, this administrative state, is not affected by elections. It it mm-hmm. stays there. It has its and and it eventually developed its own policy. Um, it, but yeah, you call it the deep state now because it's this part of the government that's just not beholden to the people through elections, and in fact, even opposes certain people that are elected. I mean, I'm very negative on the progressive era. It, I, I see it as a fusion between big business groups anxious to replace laissez-faire with mercantilism, sort of a, a state-controlled capitalism, where the state cartelizes and controls and subsidizes the economy. So there, there's not as much competition anymore. There's nominal private ownership, but the, the private business works in connection with the state. And then in coordination with that, you have a group of intellectuals, you know, technocrats and professional economists and people who want power and employment at through the government. And this fusion creates the, the bureaucratic state and the managed economy that we have now.
0: Well, and the fundamental issue that they have with it is a lack of accountability, which is really what you just said. If it's something that can operate outside of the constraints of elections, then... It loses accountability to citizens, which is an opposition with people who support a fundamentalist view of how America was founded. The
1: 1776 Commission really rolls progressivism into fascism, and and, mm-hmm. and draws some links between them. And this is something that I've, a lot of people criticize the report for, but it's something that I think is is very accurate. I see a lot of links between progressivism and fascism. They're very similar. Um, I mean, fascism is progressive, is is progressive economics. If you look at the things that Hitler, Mussolini and FDR did in the economy at the same time, they're basically the same thing. Um, They all suspended the gold standard. Um, FDR made it illegal to own gold. He confiscated everyone's gold. So Hitler suspended the gold standard. He embarked on huge public works programs, protected industry from foreign competition, instituted jobs programs. Control the private sector's ability to make prices and production decisions, expands the military, and then he, he goes even further than FDR. He brings in national health care, he brings in unemployment insurance, he brings in federal education standards, and runs huge definite deficits. In Italy, Mussolini creates these things called mixed entities. They're called Instituti or NT yeah, no, I don't speak Italian, obviously. But yeah, they mix corporate government and big business. They coordinate between the two. It's sometimes here called Italian corporatism. Uh, He also institutes protectionism in public works. In 1934, Mussolini said three-fourths of business in the hands of the state. And then FDR did the same thing. He had the Smoot-Hawley Tariff, which was a big protectionism, keep out foreign competition thing. The New Deal had the National Recovery Administration, which was to eliminate cutthroat competition by bringing industry, labor, and government together to create codes of fair practices and set prices. The Agricultural Adjustment Act sought to cartelize the agriculture industry. And so in Italy, each trade or industrial group was organized into a government controlled corporative association that planned production pricing in the U S the NRA organized industries into federally supervised trade associations called code authorities, which could also limit output and set prices. FDR had a very famous public works program called the WPA. And then, uh, another link between all between all of them is this heavily influence on militarism. Uh, John Flynn wrote a book in America called "As We Go Marching" in the middle of World War II, talking about how FDR's economics inevitably leads to war. So we all know about the you know sort of nationalism and militarism of of Italy and Germany, but it's the same thing in the U.S. and progressives progressives really liked war, especially in World War One because it got that gave them a chance to plan centrally plan the economy, and then after World War I, during the Great Depression, the slogan was, we planned in war. It's a famous slogan that they used to say, basically, look, we planned in war, we can plan in peacetime now. There was an advisor to FDR named Tugwell, who said things like, Mussolini had uh, done many of the things that seemed to be necessary. FDR uh, admired Mussolini, and the chief Nazi newspaper praised Roosevelt's adoption of national socialist strains of thought in his economic and social policies and the development toward an authoritarian state based on the demand that collective good be put before individual self-interest. So I, I see just a ton of links between progressivism and fascism, particularly in the militaristic and economic spheres.
0: I think where the criticism for the links comes from is that sometimes people conflate progressivism with left-wing politics and liberalism. And while I would say today those go together, if people define themselves as a progressive, a lot of times what they mean to say is they are on the left. When, I mean, you can have right-wing progressivism too. So if you look at progressivism as a means to an end, as in changing structures, rewriting things, replanning things, then yes, I agree with you. I see the links too. But I think most people view it as, oh, if I'm a progressive, it means I'm on the left. And they view that in direct opposition to fascism. So I think probably the criticism just comes from a, mis- a mismatch of terms. So the article transitions from fascism to communism by saying that when it died in 1945, it was replaced by a new threat. And the rest of the 20th century was defined by the United States battle against communism, which is defined here as the idea of the class struggle is the immediate driving force of history and particularly the class struggle between the bourgeoisie and the proletariat.
1: It just talks about the history of of communism, the bloody Bolshevik Revolution and various communist dictatorships who the communi- they, they do, I will say, have some of the best um, PR people because you hear all about how horrible the Nazis were, and their death count pales against the commies and and people just aren't as familiar with, with it. You know, the, the killing fields of the Khmer Rouge in Cambodia or the Holodomor in the Ukraine, um, Mao's Great Leap Forward, all of which have death, just giant death counts and you never hear about it. There's no Hollywood movies where Pol Pot is the bad guy.
2: There is one movie the based on the First They Killed My Father book.
0: I mean, really, at the end, they try to wrap them into one thing, fascism and communism, and saying both of them fail because they're both lies, because the lie that they're referring to is going against the idea of inalienable rights.
1: Okay. Racism and identity politics.
0: The, the first thing I wanted to point out, their definition of racism isn't very good in the first paragraph. So, and if, if you're gonna talk about it, you might as well define it. And technically they define it as the unequal treatment of blacks everywhere, which I, I suppose is functional for what they wrote about, but isn't actually what racism is.
1: I, I don't read that as the, them defining racism as the unequal treatment of blacks everywhere. I read them as saying it didn't bring an end to racism or the unequal treatment of blacks everywhere.
0: I think with the comma, they meant it to be a definition.
1: How would you define uh, racism?
0: Racism is prejudice and discrimination directed against people on the basis of race or ethnic group.
1: It basically gives an an overview of the Civil War with the Reconstruction Amendments, Jim Crow, Mm -hmm. then the Civil Rights Movement in the 1960s, and it portrays this flow as a, a steady climb upward in positivity then it says, then the pivot is, it seemed finally that America's nearly two century effort to realize fully the principles of the declaration had reached a culmination. The heady spirit of the original civil rights movement, whose leaders forcefully quoted the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution, and the rhetoric of the founders of Lincoln proved to be short-lived. And then you see this pivot into their discussion of group rights and what they call identity politics.
0: I think they gloss over a lot of the struggles of the civil rights movement because they they I think they it almost as this linear thing that just happened. It was a time when people wanted rights. And then they say when the movement culminated in the 1960s and it passed the legislative reforms affecting segregation, voting and housing rights. It presented itself and was understood by the american people as consistent with the principles of the founding really when all of this was going on it was a civil rights movement because a lot of people did not view its ideas as being consistent when i read it i felt like they were trying to smooth the transition when really it was a very divisive period
1: So they see identity politics as a distortion of the civil rights um, movement, um, the abandonment of non-discrimination and equal opportunity in favor of group rights. And they try to link it to Calhoun here. Um, I I don't think that there's that much of a link there. And they say the justification for reversing the promise of colorblind civil rights was that past discrimination requires present effort or affirmative action in the form of preferential treatment to overcome long accrued inequalities. And it says these forms of preferential treatment finally were sanctified. Um, It said first in administrative rulings and executive orders, later in law, and then finally sanctified by the Supreme Court, Um, which is true. Affirmative action in college admissions is one of only two types of racial discrimination that's been allowed by the Supreme Court under the 14th Amendment. Korematsu, the Supreme Court, said it was constitutionally acceptable to intern Japanese Americans.
0: I don't have a specific issue with affirmative action. I mean, there's the argument that by having it, it favors some people with race as a determinant. But the reason it was put into place is because people were being overlooked with race as a determinant. So it's meant to counteract people being completely passed over. I mean, yes, it's still, yes, you have to be in a category based on your race as a result of some of these policies. But it keeps people from still being systematically prevented from given, being given opportunities.
1: I like meritocracy. And so anytime you're talking about mm-hmm. bringing into consideration things other than the merits, then you have, I think the opportunity for discrimination. The second thing is that the number one group in America that's currently being discriminated against with quasi-racial quotas is not white Americans. It is Asian Americans. Um, they are the ones who are suing Harvard's Harvard for their admission policy. Uh, they are the ones that are, if you look at the data, based on test scores and things like that, that are disproportionately impacted by um, policy. It's not that it would be okay if it was white people, but it's not, it's it's other racial minorities. Another problem with it is mismatch theory is, I mean, it's an empirical question, so I'm not up to date on it, but the, the thinking goes is, Let's say you have someone that, say, would not get into Harvard based on their test scores, based on their test scores on high school GPA, but because of soft factors like race they get in anyway, well, they, now, they are now in a college that is basically too tough for them. And so they don't do as well, whereas it would be better for them if they were in a college where academic achievements more closely mirrored what their ability level was and so by putting people into institutions that are too advanced for them it's actually bad for them
2: and i can see that that like affirmative action is addressing more the symptom than the cause that if there is inequality in how people are being treated and looked at for jobs or acceptance into and admittance, admittance into schools that the problem comes earlier on then yeah take take race off the applications take it's hard when it is a factor in the negative but making it be a factor in the other direction doesn't seem like the right solution and while I don't know what the right solution would be other than to tell people don't judge people based off their race and ethnicity
1: of national renewal. So this section talks basically about how we need to fix America. And <laughs> the way to do that is through education and the formation of citizens, through patriotic education that teaches the truth about America.
0: The first institution the article cites as having the most influence on saving America is the family. My first question was what do they think families are doing? I mean my, my first question was like what do you think happens in the family? Because what they discuss is everything's framed almost in the context of things that are not happening. Like it's all of these suppositions that they put in place. And I felt like it reads that they believe these things aren't occurring. And what it says is that number one, when children see their mother and father hard at work, they learn the dignity of labor and the reward of self-discipline. When adults speak out, um, children learn time-tested concept of free expression. When parents serve a neighbor. need, they model charity, etc. So and it says for the American Republic to endure, families must remain strong and reclaim their duty to raise up morally responsible citizens who love America and embrace the gifts and responsibility of freedom and self-government. And number one, I like most family, I work with quite a few families, I feel like most families I know exemplify at least a few of the above characteristics. And it's kind of asserting that today's families are not raising responsible citizens, which I think is completely untrue.
1: Saying they need to reclaim their duty implies that they're, they they currently don't have it. There's no action plan here. No. In terms of having families reclaim their duty to raise it's like if parents aren't doing a good job raising their kids on some level, there's actually just not a whole lot you can do about it. What it reminds me of is James Comey was testifying in front of, I can't remember if he's testifying or talking or giving a speech, you know, whatever it was, but he said something along the lines of, when you testify, you do it under oath. And the reason that you swear an oath before God is that people used to be very religious. And so they thought that they would receive punishment from God, if they lied under oath. Mm-hmm. And he said, and a lot of people don't believe in God or take that seriously anymore. So now the government has to step in and do it. And it's like, okay, so you're like, the government's just going to step in and be God now and like make everyone tell the truth. Like, that's just kind of a big burden to put on yourself. And it's whenever I see the gut, gov- like some kind of government commission, be like, we need to make sure pa- families raise up responsible citizens it's like, how are you going to do that
2: it, it's either happening or it's not happening and yeah you can't implement some sort of regimen to make sure that parents are what speaking out against dangerous doctrines you know twice a month checkbox like
1: Twice a month, each family must speak out against dangerous doctrines or be reported to the local,
2: yeah. Your
0: local authority. But the last thing I'll say about that is if it sounds like, and this is just what I'm reading into it, if they want to make sure families are reclaiming their duty, it sounds like they need some government-sponsored programs to assist families. And gosh, doesn't that sound like progressivism?
1: to save America. I talk a lot about about Chesterton's fence and Mm -hmm. um, a related concept is Chesterton's fence post, which is sort of the inverse of it. And basically it's Chesterton's observation that conservatism is sort of self-defeating. And he says that, so if you think about conservatives as not interfering, not intervening all the time and wanting to keep things the same, well, if you have a white fence post, and you don't do anything to it, it's not gonna stay white. The only way it stays white is if you continually intervene and continue to paint it. And that's that's sort of this thing that I, I see. If, if, you, if you're if worried about, you know, maintaining sort of the way things are and not interfering with families. I mean, like, like it's not, like you, you have to do something. Either you, either the government starts, if, if families aren't doing what, what you want them to, either, you have to accept that and accept the change that comes with it, or you have to interfere with the family, but you have to want one, you can't not interfere with families mm-hmm. and get the result you want. Conservatives also are just progressives driving the speed limit. Conservative in America is a losing proposition because all they're doing is just defending what progressivism, progressives put in 20 years ago. I'll quote Chesterton again. He says, it's the job of a progressive to keep making mistakes and the job of a conservative to keep them from getting fixed.
0: Mm-hmm the Teaching America section, they say that, that children need to learn the principles that unite and inspire and ennoble all Americans, putting lessons on the Revolutionary, the Declaration of Independence, and the Constitutional Convention. If you look at national education standards, it's taught in fifth, eighth, and I believe ninth grade history. So you're not just getting it once, you're getting it quite a few times. And again, it's just I feel like it says it in a way that some students are not learning this, and I really don't think that's the case.
2: I was reading, I wasn't aware that schools didn't teach about the Declaration of Independence anymore. Things sure have changed (laughs) from when we had to learn, memorize
0: parts of it in school. I I did somewhat appreciate them also defining the fact that love for your country is not romantic love. For those of you out there who were wondering if it could be.
1: This section is, I think, a perfect illustration of what you just said, Lauren. This, the idea that schools are there to make good citizens is a progressive idea. That's where it starts. So if you look at the history of public schooling in America, the first people to do it are the Puritans. And the reason they did is they wanted to make good little Puritans. And so they were educated in the Bible and um, that kind of thing. Then Horace Mann goes to Prussia and he sees the Prussian model of education, sees how great it is that everyone, they make these great obedient little students. He brings it back and they implement this Prussian school of the, this Prussian idea of um, schooling in the during the Progressive Era um, after the Civil War in the in the third party system the, um, the primary conflict was between people called um, Pietists and people called liturgicals. Pietists were typically descended from New England Puritans and they were Anglo-Saxon in origin and they also tended to be at this point irreligious, but they still kept the millennialism of of their parents. And so they really wanted to purify society versus the liturgicals who were Irish and German and Italian who were Catholic and not Anglo-Saxon. Specifically, the Pietists pushed through these things called Blaine Amendments, and what Blaine Amendments did was they outlawed parochial and private education. And the goal was, we're gonna take the kids of all these immigrants, these, these papist immigrants, and we are going to send them to public school, read Protestant school, and then we are going to teach them what we think they should learn. And it was, uh, it was implemented along with, along with their eugenics program, which was pretty anti-Catholic. And what they wanted to do was these, and the pietists were very heavily linked to progressives. What they wanted to do was they wanted to remake the children of these immigrants in their own image and make good citizens that loved America rather than, you know, the homeland or whatever. And so, that's what conservatives are defending 100 years later. Like so the idea that schools make good citizens. I mean, this is a, a change from the classical idea of education where you have, you know, the, tri- the trivium and, the, but like, yeah, you know, reading, writing, and arithmetic and rhetoric and logic and whatever they learned. And in place, we're going we're gonna to make good citizens. It's like, so you are got to break the will of children and teach them to be good little obedient robots and automatons. Have fun with that.
0: Nebraska is not technically common core, nor will we ever be, because there's a provision in the Nebraska constitution that all Nebraska curriculum must be written and approved by Nebraska teachers. So we actually have a state provision that blocks us from being a common core state. However, if you look at curriculum across the nation, Regardless of if we are or if we are not, really is irrelevant because the curriculum that is available for you to purchase and adopt is already aligned to Common Core standards. So you don't have to be Common Core to do Common Core. I think the social studies standards do the best job of illustrating this concept of teaching kids to be good citizens. The standards I was most trying to refer to are like the citizenship standards which are often introduced in kindergarten, first grade. So it's like looking at your own cultural practices and those around the community and within the world. Um, compare and contrast laws within different communities and cultures, which depending on the age of the child, I'm sure looks very different. What else? Explain, um, explain the reason for laws, reason for rules. Um, explain how democratic procedures can be used to act on civic problems. So, yeah, I mean, if you even look at the way we align what we're teaching kids, first of all, they act like it's not happening. That's not true. And second of all, like you said, um, yeah, if, if a state is common core, even if they're not, sometimes they are automatically teaching concepts of citizenship from the primary level on it. Teaching America really focuses on schools K-12, a scholarship of freedom extends that on up to the university level where the article really takes issue with the way modern American universities are run and says that really what they do is they create a lot of ideas about America that do not promote reverence for its principles and core documents. And they say that a lot of collegiate institutions focus on the worst parts of America and fostering disdain and hatred instead of what they would like to see happen, which is foster love and reverence.
2: I don't feel like either way I was taught anything remotely relating to how to perceive America in college. I think I took one government class my freshman year.
0: I never felt like I had professors telling me what I was supposed to believe about America.
2: There are a couple words and phrases sprinkled throughout that just gave it like a weird vibe to me. Like I don't know the phrase reverence for its principles. The the word reverence just sounded weird to me. A weird way to use that word.
1: There's very few things that I have reverence for, and mm-hmm. uh, the United States government is not one of them. It's just one of those things where. I think the focus should be on accuracy. Is the is the scholarship accurate? Not what is the conclusion of the scholarship? Because if the if the scholarship is accurate, then you go for, then you follow its conclusion, whether you like it or not. If it's inaccurate, then you reject it. And that's really where I think the focus should be, not on whether it's, you know, reverent or not. And, and and you can be factual without being truthful. So like mm-hmm. if I tell you a bunch of stories that were all true. But we're all very—we're not maybe representative of the broad swath of history. That's inaccurate just as much as outright lies.
0: At no point should—at least I believe—at no point should an institution tell you what to believe one way or another. So if we're going to take issue with it, supposedly giving students all this anti-American propaganda, we should also take issue with it giving them only reverential. Propaganda. It's the same thing. I mean, your college shouldn't tell you what to think about things. You're not paying for that, which I think launches perfectly to the American mind, which was also a treat. Um, in addition to um, a strict, non-romantic love for America in our schools, sorry, in our schools, our public universities, um, they also argue for it in literature. So in The American Mind, it discusses how Americans yearn for timeless stories, noble heroes. We wanna be inspired to be good, brave, diligent, daring, generous, honest, and compassionate, and probably many more things, as I'm sure to lots of people all over the world. But there's all this um, kind of poetic language about many of the classics. So Mark Twain, Edgar Allan Poe, different Independence Day songs, Um, Little Women. They bring up a lot of classics and then they ultimately say that today's authors, artists and filmmakers need to be up to the task and need to also write stories that restore our conviction to embrace the good, which again, asserts this is not happening currently or they're taking an issue with whatever people want to create with their freedom
1: of speech. I, I, I kind of get what they're, where they're coming from. I mean, I, I like the American cultural heritage. I like Twain. I like Poe. Because the one example that stands out to me, if I think of depictions of America that embrace the good, lead virtuous lives and act with an attitude of hope, of hope that, that like the most famous portrait of America in recent memory that I can think of does this. And that's um, Captain America in the Marvel series he's the modern version of it. He's, I mean, and, and you saw this, like if you ever watched like the reaction scenes when um, he lifts Thor's hammer and game like around the world, people just go crazy. They love it. They like captain America, what they're looking for is captain America. And he exists. I mean, I'm sure there's, you know, renditions of America that are less positive, but I mean, that's just, that's like the one thing I can think of right now. And it kind of goes against, I mean, it is what I imagine they would want.
0: And Captain America is characterized in each of the movies as a blend between the old and the new. He's from a different era, but he fits in perfectly with his modern day counterparts.
2: In regards to Falcon and the Winter Soldier, it's how Sam the Falcon takes up the mantle of Captain America. And then especially in relation to being a Black person in America and what it means for him to take on that mantle.
1: The reverence for the law section is interesting because it's kind of like, please tell me more about how the, the founders showed reverence for the laws when they declared independence <laughs> and fought a war against essentially the government at the, the time. War. Yeah, I mean, and, and if you look, read into American colonial history, it's, there are so many rebellions, even before the American Hi. Revolution. There's just tons in every colony. And it's great. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's, I I get the idea that you don't want, you know, people just getting murdered with impunity and, you know, buildings burning all over the place. But yeah, I mean, Americans don't hesitate to break the law if we think the law is unjust, you know, from the days of the American Revolution to the nonviolent protesters of the civil rights era.
0: When they talk about reverence for the law, they really only go on to address the idea of rule of law and mob rule. There, I mean, that, that's the only thing being addressed here. There aren't any specific laws they're looking to see elevated to more reverence. There aren't any laws that they're seeking to change. They really only advocate this to mean the American people need to abide by rule of law, meaning the law should apply to everyone. And then it cautions against mob rule and states that it's unpatriotic. But that's really the only thing discussed.
1: Yeah, it talks about mob rule and tyrannical rule both violate the rule of law. There's a concept called anarcho-tyranny. It's basically, the idea is that, well, maybe it's easier to give an example of this. In um, I saw a video at Portland or somewhere like there, and there's this guy in a, in a truck, and he's driving, and these protesters come out, and they, they cover his windows with spray paint and start like, beating on the doors and stuff, and he gets out of the car, and he pulls a gun. And the cops who are sitting there watching all this happen, come over and arrest him for pulling the gun out. So it's, it's basically anarcho tyranny is the idea that the police will not enforce laws when it's people you know, attacking other people, burning down buildings. But when you go to defend yourself, then they're there because you're breaking the law. And um, so you know they'll let protesters come and burn down a building. But if the business owner tries to defend his building, they'll arrest him for pulling a gun or whatever. At least with tyranny, typically there's order. But when you have anarcho-tyranny, you have chaos. I mean, it's just, it's the worst of both worlds. Yeah. And then in conclusion, it, it basically reiterates what we've talked about. Um, America's founding principles are true, um, not because they're perfect, not because Americans have perfectly fulfilled them, but because they're based upon the eternal truths of the human condition. These principles of created equal and illegal rights, powers from the consent of the governed. This is something that's true throughout humanity, throughout our history, people have changed uh, America for the better by appealing to them and America continually works better, works closer toward implementing these ideals and practices. To be American is a good thing. It's noble and good. It means treasuring freedom. We are shaped by the beauty of our continent, the glory of our history. We have great virtues and great principles, and that we need to teach Americans an accurate history of the country. Um, the Declaration's worth preserving. The Constitution's worth defending. And our country's worth fighting for. And now it's our task to renew this commitment. This is basically the, the conclusion to the 1776 Commission. Thank you for listening to this episode of Left, Right, and Unwanted.
2: Please tune in next time.